Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Like most professions, when a pastor wants to relocate to a new church, he sends out his resume. Of course, a resume is a listing of the pastor's skills and traits and experiences, assets that he might bring to a new congregation. Well, churches in need of a pastor, they read through these resumes, and then they invite candidates in for an interview. But a prospective pastor needs to be careful what he includes on his bio. Today, I brought with me a top 10 list. The top 10 statements a pastor should not put on his resume. These are the things he should not put on his resume. Number 10, in the five churches I've faithfully served over the last two years. (laughs) Don't want to do that. Number nine, my extensive counseling of church members has produced a rich source of illustrations for my sermons. No, not good, not good. Number eight, I have the stamina to preach two-hour sermons. Number seven, my personality type has provided me ample opportunity to develop a wide range of conflict resolution skills. Number six, I've been told every sermon I preach is better than the next. Not good. Number five, you don't want to put this on your resume, with a suspended driver's license, a car allowance won't be necessary. Number four, hobbies include pit bulls and automatic weapons. No, no. Number three, I require Sundays off. Not good for the pastor. Number two, I have learned to cope with financial crisis at every church I've served. Not good. And number one, the number one thing you don't want to put on your list, I have five jokes that are so funny I tell them over and over. Not what you want on your resume. I mentioned pastoral resumes because there were critics of Paul in the church at Corinth who were questioning the apostle's resume or lack of one. His detractors were using this to cast doubt on his credibility. Chapter 3 opens with his reluctant defense. Paul writes, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you? Or letters of commendation from you? You see, a common practice in the early days of Christianity was for traveling preachers to carry letters of commendation or referrals from their home church. You know, even today, requests come from missionaries seeking support, or folks want to speak or sing at Calvary Chapel, and they include references from other churches where they've ministered. It's sort of standard protocol. It's a way to validate the legitimacy of a person's ministry. And even Paul participated in this practice. In Romans 16, You'll recall that he recommends Phoebe. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is an endorsement of Titus. His letter to Philemon commended Onesimus to the church. But what Paul did for others, he saw no need to do for himself. At least not in Corinth. Why would he need letters when he started this church? And when he led its first members to the Lord? Paul was Christianity's ground zero in Corinth. In fact, the existence of Christianity in such a pagan city alone 
should have validated Paul's ministry. In essence, Paul is saying to the believers in Corinth, I started your church. It was through my preaching that God saved your soul. And now you want to see my ID? What gives? See, the Corinthians were asking for Paul's resume, but he says, you are my resume. He writes, you are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. You see, the false teachers had come to Corinth after Paul departed, and they had come with impressive paperwork. But Paul insists that the Corinthians were his paperwork. Here's the point. How do you know a pastor is called by God? Boy, a wall full of diplomas or ordination certificates or just wallpaper. The proof is the fruit of his ministry. He says in verse 3, Clearly, you are an epistle that is a letter of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. See, Paul was the pen that God used to write on the hearts of the Corinthians. God's transforming spirit was the ink, and Christ Jesus was the author of their salvation. Put it all together, and Paul calls the Corinthians letters of Christ. You know, today we send text messages and emails But when Paul communicated with people, he picked up a quill pen and parchment, and he literally inked his letters. And yet ink can smear or smudge or even fade over time. Even when ink is legible, the words can be lost or ignored or misinterpreted. And this is what had happened with the old covenant that God had given to the Hebrews. See, God wrote his will on stone tablets. When he gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, God chiseled his commands with his fingers into two pages of stone. In essence, Dr. God was saying to his patients, take these two tablets daily and you'll feel better. See, the problem was that the Jews ignored the prescription. There was nothing wrong with God's law. The issue wasn't what was written, but it was how it was written. Because it was an external document to the Hebrews, they could neglect it or abandon it or misunderstand God's law. Say a friend gives you directions to a new restaurant. He writes them down on a piece of paper. Well, just having that paper doesn't mean you're going to arrive at the restaurant. You can lose the directions or you can misread them. Or you can spill a drink and smear the ink. But if I plug those addresses, those directions, into your car's navigation or into your, your car phone, your GPS, that GPS would prove much more efficient than a piece of paper, wouldn't it? And you see, this is why under the new covenant, God writes his will on our hearts. Living under the law was like carrying directions on a piece of paper. Or stone tablets. But when a person comes to faith in Jesus, God implants his will into their basic desires and instincts. His spirit activates a spiritual GPS inside of them, a new nature that keeps directing and recalibrating them into God's will. 
This is the miracle of the new covenant. And Paul holds it up in contrast to the old. With the new covenant, in essence, God has gone high tech. He's discarded papers and stone tablets. And he's planted a spiritual chip deep into every believer's spirit. The old covenant involved following external directions, while the new covenant creates on-board guidance. A person now inhabits you and me. The Spirit of Jesus lives in us. And thus verse 4 states, And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Again, the law depended too heavily on our ability to obey directions. Not everyone excels at reading and following what's written. In fact, the worst person on the planet at following directions is yours truly. Man, I, can't, I, I have a terrible sense of direction. In fact, the joke in our house is always, if you want to go to heaven, ask Sandy. If you need to get anywhere else, you better ask Kathy. <laughs> I get lost coming to church some mornings. But success under the new covenant has nothing to do with our knack for directions. Our sufficiency is from God, Paul says. Rather than hand us the law, a set of instructions that we should follow, God plants his homing device in our hearts where we can never get away from him. He writes his will and his way inside of us. Our job is to trust him and in what he's done. Our sufficiency is from God. I love little Darth Vader. He thinks the force is with him. In fact, he tries to muster its power. And yet in the end, the only person with any power turns out to be his dad. Take a look. And this is exactly what the Old Covenant taught us. That on our own, we are insufficient. We have no power. It is the power of our Father who is our sufficiency. Trust Him. Trust in His power, not your own. It's God, Paul says, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the New Covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Paul's ability to live out the new covenant was also his ability to pass it on. The Holy Spirit, he says, ministered through him. For Paul adds in verse 6, For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Assign someone a task without the strengths or the skills to do that task, and you sentence them to despair. 
This is exactly what the letter of the law did. See, the law on stone tablets was impossible for the Jews to keep. Not because there was anything wrong with the law. The law was perfect. But the people trying to keep it were very imperfect and thus unable. In the early and not so successful days of Chicago's NBA team, the Bulls had a coach named Johnny Kerr. Once before a game, Kerr entered the team's locker room to get his players fired up for the game. He said to one guy, he says, you go out there and you act like the best scorer in the NBA. To another fellow, he shouted, you pretend to be the best rebounder basketball has ever seen. And to a third guy, he said, you imagine yourself to be the best defender there has ever been. Yet sadly, when the game was over, the Chicago Bulls had lost again by 17 points. Coach Kerr was so depressed, that's when one of his players encouraged him, don't worry, coach, just pretend we won. (laughs) But this is what happens when you live under the law. Oh, you're trying to win a game? You simply can't win. You're not good enough to win this game. You don't have the skill. And if you're too proud to admit it, you end up just pretending that you won. That is, you play the hypocrite. And that's why Paul says, the letter, it kills. It's the Spirit who gives life, who enables us to be successful. Verse 7 recalls the initial giving of the Old Covenant. He says, but if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Exodus 34 describes the face of Moses after he came down from the mountain with the law in his hands. His countenance was actually flush with the glory of God. Call it the divine shine. I like to call it the mo glow. Moses looked like he had stayed too long in the tanning bed. His face beamed. Moses radiated the glory of God. God actually required Moses to cover his face with a veil, for God's glory was off limits to the sinful Hebrews. And yet Paul tells us that the moglo faded over time. And likewise, the glory of the old covenant also waned and fizzled. You know, when God first gave the law on Mount Sinai, it was accompanied with thunder and lightning and shaking. It started out with a bang, but it ended up a dud. The law of Moses was unable to make anyone righteous. It turns out the old covenant was transitory. It gave way to a better covenant. Today, it is the grace of God and the work of the Spirit that make for a more glorious covenant. The divine shine passed, but the glory of God's grace lasts forever. For he says in verse 10, For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. He's saying compared to the glory of the gospel of Christ, the glory of the law now looks dull and lackluster. He says, For if what is passing away was glorious... What remains is much more glorious. 
The promise, prominence, and splendor of the old covenant was fleeting. You could literally watch it fade from Moses' face. But the preeminence and the significance of the new covenant, it lasts forever. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Under the old covenant, the Hebrews were unworthy to behold God's glory. And thus Moses hid his face behind a veil. And that veil became a symbol for the blindness that has existed in the hearts of the Jews. They read the law and they understand its demands, but they're unable to obey it. The law produced guilt, not confidence. It became a source of frustration rather than a sense of freedom. And verse 14 explains the effect that this has had on the Jews ever since. He says, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. See, the old covenant didn't, become, didn't just become obsolete. It created a spiritual impediment for Jewish hearts. You know, whenever we read Old Testament passages like Isaiah 53, the passages that speak so vividly of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. When we read those things, we ask ourselves, why don't the Jews recognize Jesus as their Messiah? And there are multiple reasons I could give for that, but the short answer is verse 14. Their minds were blinded. When Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. The problem is a spiritual blindness. For when the law is read, pride rises up. The thought gets inflamed. Oh, we're good people. We're God's chosen people. We can earn his favor. We can keep his law. It's pride that blocks them from God's grace. And yet under the law, there was a hopelessness. God still seemed a million miles away, even on their best days. You'd sooner travel to the nearest star than to get to God by your own efforts. You wanted to see God, but you were blinded by the veil. And that's why verse 16 should cause your heart to skip a beat. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The moment you turn to Jesus, friend, that veil of separation between you and God, it vanishes. It's just gone. Instantly, you are invaded by God's presence. His glory fills your emptiness. The distance that you felt from God evaporates. That spiritual blindness is lifted, and you're free from your guilt the moment you turn to Jesus. Verse 17 tells us, For now the Spirit, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus, and under the new covenant, He continues in us the work Jesus did for us. Thus, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom from the old covenant and from the law. 
Yet here's what happens to many Christians. It's sad, but true. We believe Jesus alone is sufficient to save us. But after we're saved, we try to live the Christian life as if it were still under the old covenant. As if it's still up to us to follow the directions. Remember, we're now under a new covenant. The directions have been plugged into our spirit. Thus, we need to live by faith. We need to just trust Jesus and lean into the Holy Spirit and let him do his work in our hearts. Our sufficiency is from God. As Paul says in verse 17, where the Spirit of the Lord is at work, transforming a heart, there's a liberty from the law. Rather than be bound by a set of external rules, the Christian now relies on God's indwelling Holy Spirit. Author and speaker Warren Wearsby used to travel back and forth across the North America speaking at revivals and meetings and conferences and so forth. And he writes about what he observed. He says, there are gospel-preaching churches that have legalistic tendencies and keep their members immature, guilty, and afraid. They spend a great deal of time dealing with the externals. They exalt standards and denounce sin, but they fail to magnify the Lord Jesus. Sad to say, in some New Testament churches, we have an Old Testament ministry. And this is the great tragedy among modern Christianity. New Testament churches with Old Testament ministries. We have a new covenant, but we live as if we're under the old. Today, too many churches emphasize rules, whereas New Covenant Christianity is about faith. Faith in the work of Jesus for us and faith in the work of his spirit in us. Verse 18 is a crucial truth. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. See, here's what happens to a believing heart under the new covenant. God strips away the veil of separation. The light of God pours into the heart that was once dark. Not because we tried hard or we earned it or we proved how much we're worth, but because of our simple faith, God's glory begins to transform us. He makes us like Jesus. The Greek word translated transformed here is metamorphosis, which speaks of a radical change. When a rock crystallizes, or when a caterpillar leaves its cocoon and flies off a butterfly, it's a metamorphosis. Under the old covenant, you conformed to the standard. You produced your own righteousness. But under the new covenant, you are transformed by the Spirit of God. You radiate His righteousness. You become like Jesus. Paul said earlier, the glory of the old covenant faded and diminished, whereas the glory of the new covenant intensifies. We go from glory to glory to glory, Paul says. The Christian life is a progression. And here's how the glow grows. We behold as in a mirror. You know what that means? It means keep spending time with Jesus. Keep looking toward him. Cast cast the perspective of your heart 
on Jesus. Keep your focus and attention toward him. See, Christianity is a metaphysical miracle. We change when we look to Jesus. First, our spirit changes. Then our thoughts and our attitudes begin to change. Ultimately, our actions change. And we do it not by trying. We do it by looking and trusting. Looking to Jesus, trusting in him. We keep our face toward Jesus. If you want to grow in your Christian life, it's as simple as this. Keep your face toward Jesus, and he will achieve the changes in your life. See, a mirror effect takes place, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. As we look to Jesus, we become like him. It's his spirit that does the work in us. We simply fix our look. Oh, the power of a look. Fix your eyes on Jesus, and you'll never be the same. It's as simple as that. Chapter 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Now, Paul knew that being a pastor is a tough job. In fact, several years ago, Lifeway Publishing They did a survey that revealed 54% of pastors feel frequently overwhelmed. In another place I read where 50% would leave the ministry if they had another way to make a living. Being a pastor is a tough job. Paul faced persecution from outside the church and he faced criticism from within the church. And yet he tells us we do not lose heart. How was it Paul was able to maintain his enthusiasm? Well, he writes in verse 1, it was this ministry. It was the joy of preaching a new covenant and he received mercy. God had forgiven him of so much. How can you quit when God has given you a glorious message and boundless mercy? And Paul writes of his ministry. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame. Not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul handled God's word faithfully, not deceitfully. You know, some pastors are like painters who cut the paint down by watering it down. You ever had a painter do that to you? Cut the paint down? Makes it spread easier, makes it go further, but doesn't last as long. Hey, Paul doesn't water down the gospel so it'll spread easier. No, Paul spoke truthfully and confidently. It's like buying a car. Years ago when the kids were little, Kathy and I, we bought a minivan. Had to buy a minivan. You know, usually at a traditional dealership, you're lied to, you're manipulated, you're strong-armed into buying I don't like any of that. So I decided to try one of those dealerships that advertised itself a no-negotiating dealership. Yet the moment we found the van we liked, guess what I started to do? Negotiate. I started to dicker. It's just habit, man. And I'll never forget what the salesman told me. He said, no pressure, sir. This is a good car at a good price. And if you don't buy it, somebody else will. I like that approach so much I bought the car. 
And this was Paul's approach to sharing the gospel. He didn't use shameful methods, craftiness or deceit or manipulation. Paul had confidence in his product. The gospel is the best deal ever, friend. This is why you don't preach the gospel like you pitch used cars. You don't have to stretch or twist the truth or bully anybody into buying. The gospel is such a deal, it'll sell itself if you just present it clearly and plainly as possible. A godly pastor knows he's not on commission. His job is to be truthful with people and faithful to God. And then he says in verse 3, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Paul says the gospel is so appealing. The only reason folks would reject it is if they had been blinded by Satan, by the God of this age. This is why before we preach, we need to pray. And then I love verse 5. It's so important. It says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Christian ministry should be void of any form of self-promotion. We are bondservants for Jesus' sake. Can you imagine a bondservant with a fan club? It doesn't exist. Servants don't have fan clubs. Hey, you can't promote yourself and magnify Jesus simultaneously. The spotlight only shines on one person at a time. And if it's on you, that means that Jesus is being overlooked. He says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You break the darkness not by talking about yourself, but by shining God's light. It's the knowledge of Jesus that drives out the darkness. Then he says in verse 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, at first glance, this is a strange metaphor. Who puts treasure in clay pots? I mean, this would be like serving steak and lobster on paper plates. Or an expensive wine in a styrofoam cup. I mean, you expect to find jewels and gold in a treasure chest, not in a paper sack. But Paul says this is how God packages his valuables. He has taken the most expensive treasure on earth, the gospel, and guess what? He's put it in clay pots. By the way, that's us. We're the clay pots. We're the clay everyday pots. You and I are cracked pots. That's what we are. We're all crackpots. Imagine God places the gospel in ball jars. That's what he's saying. But why does he do this? He gives us the explanation that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. God puts his treasure in cracked pots to hammer home the point that the power and the beauty and the wisdom is in the message, not in the messenger. 
D.L. Moody was the Billy Graham of his day. He was an evangelist who God used in many mighty ways. And yet Dwight Moody was uneducated. Neither did he have a pleasing appearance. His voice was nasally and high-pitched. Once a reporter was sent to analyze Moody's success, he wrote this. He says, I see nothing whatsoever in D.L. Moody to account for his marvelous work. And that is exactly why God chose D.L. Moody. He puts his treasure in brown paper sacks so that everyone will know that the excellence, the power is of God and not of us. This is why Christian ministry should always be conducted in humility and in simplicity. No glitzy fanfare, no ostentatious displays, no verbose introductions. This is not fitting of the gospel of Christ. Certainly we should strive for excellence in our ministry, but the issue is motive. There's a difference between expressing ourselves and trying to impress others. The question always is, are we trying to get the message heard or do we want the messenger seen? You know, whenever you drink, take a drink, you want the taste to be of the contents and not of the container. I have a coffee cup in my office. It's devoted to coffee. But on occasion, I don't, I don't like drinking out of cans. And so on occasion, I'll take a Coke can and I'll pour the Coke into the coffee cup. And guess what I end up with? Coffee-flavored Coke. That's right. The contents get contaminated by the container. And this is what you want to avoid when we share the gospel. This is why God has put his gospel in clay pots. The message needs to be pure and untainted by the container, by us. Folks should leave marveling at the message, not how hip or how cool the messenger happens to be. Do we preach Jesus or do we promote ourselves? The reason Paul endured hardship in his ministry is because he was enthralled by its message. Verse 8, he says, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Everywhere Paul went to preach, he got beat up, but he never gave up. His message motivated his ministry. And the same is true of us. When you carry a glorious message, you carry on despite the hardship. Paul says in verse 10, that he's always caring about in the body of the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Paul's wounds, the cracks in his body, were opportunities for the life of Jesus to shine through him. I heard the story of a young man who lost his leg due to cancer. Afterwards, he fell into a dark depression. A psychiatrist was trying to help him, and he asked him to draw a picture of himself. Well, he drew this ugly, cracked, worthless vase. And yet over time, this young man started helping other cancer patients. He discovered that he could encourage them, and he could give them hope in ways that other people couldn't. He had been through what they were going through. 
gave his life new meaning. One day, the doctor showed him his old drawing. A young man, he took out a yellow crayon, and he started drawing colorful streamers flowing out of the cracks in the vase. And he made the statement, where it's broken, this is now where the light comes through. And in essence, Paul is making the same statement. He's not discouraged by his own hurt and suffering, for he knows that where he's dying, the resurrection power, the light of Jesus is shining through for others to see. See, the gospel is a proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection. But for Paul, the gospel wasn't just an article of faith. It was a way of life. His life was a repetitive succession of deaths and resurrections. So that each time Paul suffered, God would resurrect hope through his suffering. His life was a reminder that God brings resurrection from death. Author Kent Hughes, he puts it this way. The cycle of Christ's experience becomes the pattern for Paul and all serious Christians. Affliction, death, resurrection. See, remember this when you suffer a death. The death of a friendship. The death of a romance. The death of a business. The death we experience may just be a setup for the resurrection of something new and better and truly miraculous that God wants to do. For God still works in waves of death and resurrection. And then he says in verse 13, And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, a quote from Psalm 116 verse 10, We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Paul had given his body to God as a living sacrifice. He wasn't worried about its present welfare. His body would be resurrected, immortal, incorruptible, invincible. Death could not take from Paul what truly mattered. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Paul considered life's sufferings worth it, knowing that God would be glorified. And then verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Notice Paul ends this chapter just as it began. (laughs) He says, no matter how banged up we get, We refuse to give up. And in these last three verses, Paul tells us how he overcame painful and discouraging circumstances. It was all about focus. There were three contrasts that the Apostle Paul always kept in proper perspective. Pay attention to these now. He stayed focused on the inner man rather than the outer man. The eternal over the temporal and the spiritual over the tangible. Notice first, Paul tells us, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Now here Paul notes a potential source of great discouragement. You and I are growing older. 
which reminds me of a new list, another top ten. Oh, my. It's incredible. You people are getting two top ten lists in one morning. Here are the top ten ways you know you're getting older. A new version, a new version of the top ten ways you know you're getting older. I've done this before, but this is a new version. Number ten, when you walk past a bathroom and think, I might as well pee while I'm here. I'm sorry. It's true, though. Number nine, when your superheroes have all retired. Number eight, when your belt creeps up above your belly button. Number seven, when you go straight out, when you go to straighten out the wrinkles in your socks and realize you aren't wearing any socks. Number six, when you hear your favorite music in the elevator. Number five, when you see expensive antiques and remember one just like it that you once threw away. You're getting older. Number four, when it takes longer to rest than it did to get tired. Number three, when it takes two tries to get up from your chair. You know you're getting older. Number two, when you sit in a rocking chair but can't get it going. And number one, you know you're getting older when you turn blue from trying to hold your stomach in for too long. Hey, the outward man is perishing. All supermodels end up wrinkled. All bodybuilders wither in the grave. But while the outward man is deteriorating, notice this. God's spirit is invigorating the inner man day by day. See, our bodies are wearing down physically, but the inner person of the heart can get stronger and stronger spiritually. God made our spirits as rechargeable. We just need to plug them into the proper spiritual outlets. God's word and prayer and worship and fellowship. See, the key to overcoming discouragement is to stay focused on the inward man rather than the outward man. Remember, there is a power. There is power in the Godward look. The second way that Paul beats the blahs was to focus on his eternal rewards, not his temporal troubles. He tells us in verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Isn't this amazing? Paul endured shipwrecks and stonings and imprisonments, but notice what he calls them, our light affliction. How can that be? Light? You know objects that are heavy on earth, when taken out into space, become light? And you see, this is what happens when you take your troubles and when you see them up against heaven and up against eternity. Heaven's highs make earthly burdens seem light as a feather. Do you realize that heaven is going to be so heavy that your first nanosecond with Jesus is going to make up for a whole lifetime of suffering here on this earth? Do you realize that? Paul says, our light affliction I don't care what you're going. It's a light affliction compared to eternity's 
glories. Our light affliction is just for a moment compared to the eternity that's to come. And I love verse 17. Boy, in it God promises us not just glory, but a weight of glory. And not just a weight of glory, but an eternal weight of glory. And not just an eternal weight of glory, but an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And there's even more. Not just an exceeding and eternal weight of glory, but a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And not just a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, but a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. How's that for a bright future? That's what we have awaiting us. This is why we need to keep our eyes on heaven. Much, much more is in store. And finally, we stay hopeful looking beyond the visible and tangible to the spiritual things of life. Paul says it in verse 18, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, the spiritual stuff of life are the realities that matter most. Love and grace and mercy and peace and joy and holiness and fellowship. He says, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Material things lose their luster. Give them a few months, and the brightest new fads start to dim. But love and grace and peace and joy, the spiritual stuff of life, only grow in their brilliance. Focus on what you see, and you'll lose heart. But focus on what's below the surface and beyond time, and faith will grow. You recall when Elisha's servant heard that the king had dispatched men to take the prophet captive? The servant became frightful, fearful, but not Elisha. For the prophet had eyes of faith. He saw more than his servant's eyes could see. And Elisha prayed that God would open the eyes of his servant. And the Bible tells us, Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. God had dispatched troops of his own. The angelic secret service was actually protecting Elisha. The servant just didn't see. But Elisha's prayer for his servant is my prayer for you. May the Lord help us to look past the visible world that is before us. And may he open our eyes to the spiritual realm that's all around us. Where he has equipped us with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. So, here's how we overcome discouragement and not lose heart. Stop focusing on the deterioration of the outer man and let God renew the inner person day by day. Seek eternal rewards, not temporal success, and gravitate toward what's spiritual, not what's visible. A Christian's priority should be inward, not outward, eternal, not temporal, and spiritual, not tangible. I mean, did I tell you that these were two rich chapters? They were, weren't they? I hope you'll continue to study them this coming week. Father, we thank you for your words to us.